All right, so I want to take us into something that I feel the Lord's put in my heart for the season. Two weeks ago, we spoke a little bit about the future of the church. We showed some slides. We just looked at um, where we've come from and where we're going. And there's been a wonderful response from the family, which is you. And uh, just wonderful people got excited. And it's, it's a good thing to have vision and where God's taking us and dealing with the growth. So I, God put it in my heart to teach on something the next, when I say the next few weeks, there'll be a big break in the middle. So I'm introducing something that I know some of the guys may touch on while I'm away, but I'm introducing something and I'll pick up when we get back. It is so, so, so important. And we need the word and we need doctrine and we need to understand difference between New and Old Testament and so many things that are so important for who we are as a church to go forward. And so I want to talk to you about preparing to possess the land and what that means. And I've approached this, if you've grown up in church, you talk about possessing the land, the promised land, you know the allegories, you know the prophetic meanings, but I've approached this as if people don't know, because I find there's a lot of, obviously not you, never you, but there's... <laughs> A lot of biblical illiteracy, and, and when you start to look at prophetic stuff in the Old Testament, and not the prophets in terms of pointing to Christ, but you read an Old Testament story from a New Testament mindset, it, it can be difficult for some. So I'm trying to just look at this simply and practically, but it's so important. So we're going to look at uh, Numbers 13 and 14, uh, but before we do that, I'm going to spend a good amount of time actually giving us the right perspective and the right correct lens through which to look at that story. You know, you can hear things through a lens or a perspective and the whole thing is tilted. Yeah? So we're going to ask ourselves three questions before we look at what it means to possess the land as New Testament believers. And the questions I pray will give us a biblical lens. I'm going to move a little fast. Uh, so are we all awake? I don't want to spend too long on the, on the first two questions, even though they're important. But some questions to ensure a biblical lens for this series. What does it mean, number one, what does it mean for a New Testament believer to possess the land or the promised land? Because it's not physical land. So what does it even mean? Number two, what are the correct biblical motives? Or what does the Bible lay out as the motives through why we do that? And number three, what lessons can we take from the two different generations of Israelites? And we'll spend those, most of the weeks on that one issue. Because you look at a generation who came, who stood right near the promised land, and, hello, and they couldn't believe God to go in, and they spent 40 years in the wilderness. And then you look at the next generation who come back and are at the same place, in a sense, and they could. What are the two different perspectives and positions and thoughts and attitudes of the heart between those two people, those two groups of people? And the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 10, go back there and look at that and learn from it. So we're going to listen to the Bible. But first, what does it mean for a New Testament believer to possess the land in the promised land? Or, you know, they had the promised land. What does that mean for us now? The Bible says go back and look for Go back and look at that story as lessons, as examples to us on whom the end of the ages has come. But what does that mean? Well, they had physical slavery under a physical slave master, Pharaoh, in Egypt, which represents the world. So we're on board. This is awesome. Then they got set free into the wilderness, did a little walkabout there, and then they went into a physical land. Okay? We get that? 
promised land, which had boundaries and all these things. In the New Testament, we are saved and justified under the blood of Jesus, which sets us free from, from spiritual slavery. And Romans 6 says our master was sin. We born with the master of sin over us. It sets us free from spiritual slavery by the blood of Jesus and from the world, which is represented by Egypt in the Old Testament. There was a gentleman who preached years ago. He preached about don't go back to Egypt. And there were unsaved people there from Egypt. And they came to him after and said, oh, we're not supposed to go back to Egypt. He said, because you've got to explain. So we're set free from spiritual slavery to spiritual, to sin as a slave master, and we are saved out of the world. We're still in it physically, but saved out of it. Then we go into a time where we learn the voice of the Lord. We learn who He is. He teaches us who He is and who we are. Hello. And then we possess, there are promises that God has given us. There are many, all through the New New Old Testament, that He says in Deuteronomy 1, go into the land which I've given you, but go take it. So there are promises of God that he's, the, the payment of Jesus has been, has been made. Jesus has made payments for sin, for sickness, for deliverance from evil spirits, for many things. So there's been a payment, and there's all these promises in the New Testament. I don't know what's going on there. Whenever that blinks, it's a really good point. That's what it is. That's what it is. So there's promises in the New Testament, but until... We see them and actually go in and take possession of them. God's already given it to us, but we have to go and possess it. So that's the difference. So it's the promises of God is in a sense living in the promised land. So the promised land for New Testament believers is not when Jesus comes back. It's the promises of God here on the earth, walking in the victories that Jesus paid for. Walking in the life that he gave us. Hello. And we will not enter into that way of thinking and that way of living because of unbelief. Hebrews 3.19 says, we see, talking now about back to the Israelites, we see they could not enter in because of unbelief. Reading. That's literally what it says. So that's what the difference is between the two. And I just wanted to make it simple. So what are the biblical motives? And I'm going to try to go through this as well pretty fast. So I'll speak to you quick about glory, debt, and reward. The greatest biblical motive to actually go in and take hold of the promises of God, to live in victory, to live in the kingdom life. And one of the promises of God, Jesus actually said, you will be, the world will hate you. So it's not all sunshine and roses. But when you're walking with the Lord so close to the Lord and there's persecution, there's actually this sense of privilege that comes to your heart. You're like, for you, it's this just the greatest privilege. It's just a different perspective. But there's all these promises, and we are called to walk in victory. So the first biblical motive is actually the glory and honor due to his name. Some people, unfortunately, and I've been there and I've done it. We take all the provisions of Christ, supernatural power, supernatural provision, supernatural whatever, and we use it as a means to exalt ourselves. Look at us. Look what we have. Uh, uh, there's something missing there. Look at my gifts. Look, it's actually the glory and honor due to his name. You know, when I got saved, they asked me, what is your desire? And it's still my desire. It hasn't changed that when people walk in the city that I live, that people, when they walk down the street, the name of Jesus will be held in high esteem. 
high esteem for who he actually is. High honor. As you've heard me say, that he will receive the reward of his suffering. That's actually why you preach the gospel to the unsaved. Not pity for them, which is good and healthy, but more than that, that he would receive the reward for why he suffered. That is actually the biblical. Secondly, what is another biblical motive to walk in victory is this issue of debt. And what do I mean by that? Romans 1, are you guys still with me? Romans 1 says this, verse 13 to 16. Now, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I have often planned to come to you, Paul speaking, but was hindered until now, he's speaking to the, Rome, to the Romans, obviously, that I, may have, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among other Gentiles. I am a debtor. Can we say that? I am a debtor, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and unwise. So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. But he says there, I am a debtor. I owe something. And he says he is a debtor to, to Gentiles, to Greeks, to barbarians. That's speaking about Josh. No. No, in other words, for those who have education, for those who don't, for those who are heathens, pagans, Jesus is for the whole world. And he says, I am a debtor. In other words, we as the church, we owe the world Jesus. We have to see this. We owe the world Christ. We are debtors not to those who look like us and those who have regenerated hearts. We are debtors to those who make us uncomfortable, who look nothing like us, and are in spiritual blindness and slavery, and that don't even know it. (laughs) We owe it to the world not to just go through the motions in church. We owe it to the world to not have outwardly religious practices but no conviction power. We actually owe it to them. We owe it to the world to walk in breakthrough. We owe it to the world to bring freedom, spiritual freedom, which opens the eyes and injects purpose into a purposeless life. We owe it to the Lord to learn to give away what he died to give us. Freely have you received, freely give. We must have victory at every level. We must. We, we, we must have victory. <laughs> because we are actually debtors. We are indebted to those who don't even know. They're not even aware that they're in a war. And lastly, what is another biblical motive to possess the land and the space that God has for us as a person, as an individual, as a nation, as a church, but I'm speaking now as a church and for you individually. Well, there's the biblical motive of reward, eternal rewards. Some of you may not like this, but I'll say to you, heaven is not a politically correct culture where everyone gets a trophy. No, sir. No, ma'am. There are rewards. There are rewards. We will not all be the same in heaven. We will to some degree and we won't to some degree. And it's not a competition. 
because that way of thinking doesn't, doesn't apply to heaven. But there are such a thing as eternal rewards. There are, I could do a, we, could, we could do a whole series on this, but there are different thrones in the New Testament, different places or seats from which judgment is given. There are different places of judgment. There are different types of judgments that are coming, and there are different types of rewards. There are. I'll give you, can I give you a quick example without us losing the context? Can we do that? I have high faith. There's the judgment seat of Christ. There is the throne of glory. The judgment seat of Christ is for believers, which I'll explain. explain. There's the throne of glory. From that throne, which is most likely here on the earth, depends how you read scripture, is from where the nations will be judged. He returns with a scepter of iron with which to judge the nations, the Bible says, from the throne of glory, which is a different throne than the judgment seat of Christ, which is a different throne than the great white throne, which is for unbelievers. They are different places and different thrones, friends. The scripture speaks of multiple judgments, but I can give you five of the main ones. And you can look at each one if you wanted to do the study and ask these questions. Who is being judged? For what are they being judged? When does that judgment take place? And where does it take place? You'll be amazed at the freedom which will come to your heart as a believer. For example, judgment number one. Who is being judged? Believers. What are they being judged for? Sin. When does that judgment take place? 2,021 years ago at the cross of Calvary. One day you will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, which I'll get to next. But the first judgment has already happened. It's the judgment upon sin. And that judgment was placed on Jesus Christ. And we will see the wonder and the awe and the magnificence of the grace of God one day when we stand before him. And we cannot even understand right now that the judgment of sin is over. (laughs) Romans 6.10 says it. The death that he died, he died to sin once for all. The death that he died, he died to sin once for all. That means all sins for all men, for all time, for all eternity. This is emphasized in Hebrews. 7, 9, 8, 7, 8, 9, and 10. Did Jesus suffer enough for sin? Did he pay the full penalty for sin? Or do we have to pay some more? Must we add to his payment? Of course not. Now we come into that wonderful freedom of having been judged for sin through belief in Christ. But the judgment upon sin is done. Who is it for? (laughs) It's already happened. That's why Romans 10 says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone. How about this? John 5, 24. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death unto life. So there is the judgment of believers for sin. That judgment happened at the cross. Then there's another judgment for believers, and it's called the judgment seat of Christ. Where does it, who is it for? Believers. Where does it take place? Like in the air, basically at his return. And what, are, what, what is being judged? Works. Not works in order to earn salvation. You cannot do that. That's happened. We are saved through Christ. But we will be judged by 
what we've done with what he's given. It's the best way, and it's not judgment as an innocent guilty, lost and saved. It's not that. The best example, Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 9 and in many places, even in Peter, I think. But in, it's the best example is right now with the Olympics. There are judges who are judging how you run your race. And the basement of that, judges, that, that judgment is not critical. It's for the purpose of reward. We will come before the judgment seat of Christ, not for sin, but for the good works with which we were created for. The Bible says that. And there will be rewards. And the Bible in the New Testament speaks of crowns. Speaks of crowns. Actually crowns and rewards. And it's something that is sometimes lost on the modern church. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 3, uh, let me, actually I think I got it here, let me read it to you. 1 Corinthians 3 Verse 9 says, we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. According to the grace of God which is given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw... Each one's work will become clear for the day, capital D, the one day when he comes back, will declare it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. That doesn't mean he will, well actually it says it. Not he himself, but he himself will be saved, yet as through fire. So basically what it's saying is when you get there, they're going to pile all your good works in a big pile. And they're going to set fire to it. For good things. All wood, hay, and straw. All temporal things. Wrong things. Things that will just not have eternity attached to it. They all just burn up. Foop, gone. But what's left is gold, silver, and precious stones. And you will receive crowns and rewards. It's, it's not in heaven, not in heaven. It's not saved a lot. It's, it's, it's a different judgment. It's like a person who runs a race. This is in the Bible. And the great grace, the fact that we are free from the judgment of sin because we believe in Jesus and he took his, our judgment upon him. But when we get to heaven or when he comes back, there is a judgment, everything for what we have done with what he's given. And it's not for the purpose of competition. The Bible, the New Testament speaks of the crown of righteousness, the crown of life, the crown of glory. All these crowns that will be given as rewards. And why do we get them? Well, we see it in, in, in Revelations. At their feet, they cast their crowns. It's not who's better. It's how can I cast, take what I've done and have the privilege of casting it at his feet and of crowning him king. There's an intimacy even with rewards. The elders, the Bible says, constantly, every day, fall down and shout, holy, holy, and cast their crowns. I want something to cast before him. Hello. Is this making sense? It is in this context that Paul, and I'll just summarize it, Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, actually, can I read it? Can we read it? Let's go to 1 Corinthians 9. We are going to speak about Numbers 13 and 14, but it's, we are. But it's so important, friend, 
because I've seen so many believers, they talk about living in victory and possessing the land and living in the promises of God, but it all revolves around them instead of a corporate body around the glory of the Lord. And there are lenses and perspectives that are important for us as God's people. And uh, here in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24, it says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, speaking about the Olympics, and it was a crown because it was a, you know, the wreath that they used to get, give out. Uh, but, we were, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. In other words, training physically. But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Then he goes straight. Remember, there was no chapter breaks. This was a letter, yeah? The next sentence. Moreover, in other words, or because... Brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all. He straight away talks about running the race. Then he goes, why? Well, because if you look back at, what, at, at Numbers 13 and 14, we'll say, for our context, he starts to speak about the Israelites. And he says, look back in order to run well for the glory of the Lord because you owe the world something and because he wants to actually reward you with crowns. In order to run well, look back at Numbers 13 and 14. Look back at the Old Testament and it says, these things were written for you, verse um, 11. These things happened to them as, as examples and were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So he's saying you want to run well? You want to bring glory to the Lord? You want to see the lost saved? You want to the world to realize that you actually have something to give them because you owe them something as a debtor and you want to run well to hear well done good and faithful servant and have crowns to cast before the Lord. He says then go back and look at the Old Testament and look at the generation who didn't enter because of unbelief and learn lessons and look at the generation who did and learn lessons. Can we see that? So should we do that? That's a great idea. Thank you so much for your participation. <laughs> Let's go to Numbers 13. Friends, does that lens make sense? Because it's so important, right? It's why, why do we do this? Well, the Bible tells us to do it just like this. And it gives us the context. The context was how you run and why you run. So, possessing the land. What does it mean for a New Testament believer to possess the land? What are the biblical motives and what lessons can we take from the two different generations of Israelites? Well, let's read. Numbers 13. And the Lord, now they've actually been on a journey. Everyone says they've spent 40 years in the wilderness. It's more like 41 and a half. They've been on a journey for about almost 18 months already to get to this place called the wilderness of Paran. And they want to go into the promised land. Let's read. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Numbers 13 verse 1. Send men to spy out the land of Canaan. That represents the promises of God. Yeah? That he's given us that we need to take hold of. Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the children of Israel. Well, if he was giving it, why do you got to go take it? You see? That's how the promises of God work. In him, the promises are yes and amen. Ours is to say yes. 
Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the children of Israel, from each tribe of their fathers. You shall send a man, every one a leader among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran, according, or Paran probably, according to the command of the Lord. All of them men who were heads of the children of Israel, in other words, leaders. Now these were the names from the tribe of Reuben. And then if you want children's names, you can go. They're wonderful names. And you go all the way to, number, to verse 16. He goes through all the names. I'm not going to read them to you. Some wonderful names. And then in verse 16, he says, These are the names of the men, the ones that he's just listed, whom Moses sent to spy out the land, and Moses called Hoshea, the son of Nun, Joshua. Changed his name. So we'll stop there. Firstly, what do we see? We see the wilderness of Paran. He sent them from the wilderness of Paran. You know what that means in the, in the Hebrew? It means a place of caverns. And it comes from the root word, it's basically caves. And the Hebrew root words then, what it actually means, what it was used for, was when a person is hidden for the purpose of beautification. Jesus is actually called, he beautifies his bride with gifts and adornments. He loves his people. And from that hidden place of life with Jesus, he sends you out to actually take hold of a promise. And that's exactly what's happening here. They're in this hidden place with God, in the wilderness of Paran, the place of many caves and many caverns. And they're in this oasis. Literally, it's an oasis in the middle of the desert. And they're in this place of hiddenness with God and of love and joy. And they've had freedom. They're saved. They're out of Egypt. They've been justified. They're saved. They're, oh, we just love Jesus. And God says, I want you to go in and possess the land. And it's from that place that we actually are called to go out. There's nothing, you cannot take anything and put it in place of knowing him personally. There's nothing that replaces that. There is no shortcut. There just is not. He sent you to explore from a place of being with you and preparing you. The wilderness is a gift from the Lord, and we may not see it like that. God never abandons people to the wilderness. We determine the delay, not him, which we'll see. But the wilderness is a gift because the wilderness is given by, to us by God to get Egypt out of us. The thinking of a slave out. Moses spent 40 years in Egypt, the first 40 years of his life. Then he spent 40 years in the wilderness working for Jethro, his father-in-law, basically as a shepherd. He took him 40 years to get Egypt out of him before he could take God's people out of Egypt and get Egypt out of them. It is the gift of the Lord to get Egypt out of us. Now we can partner with the Lord and he has taken us out of the world and we are saved. But he also wants to take the world out of you. That's not a pressure thing. That's actually a gift. He wants to take the world's thinking, the world's ways, the world's systems out of you. Just like he had to take Egypt out of God's people. You know that God has actually called us, friends, to carry solutions as his people, to carry solutions because we owe the world, to carry practical solutions in business, in economics, in, in, in social structures, in, to carry solutions to problems that there's no solution for. He will put those solutions in his people. He's called us to carry solutions. He really has. He really, really has. So that he can position us to walk in the spirit, 
to walk with the Spirit, to walk by the Spirit, to live by the Spirit, to speak by the Spirit in the world. So, let me say this. Please don't hear what I'm not saying. The point is not revival. I love revival. I'm a student of revival. I study it. But revival is for those who have already been vived. Revival. All right? That's the best way I can say it. That's not even a word. I'm my dad's son. He makes up words all the time. So revival is for the pre-vived. Okay? In other words, it's for the church. It's for the church. To revive those who are already saved and remind them of purpose. And from that place, they actually have a point of impact to the world. They've established a spiritual beachhead where God is present and God is moving. And by the grace of God, we've seen a little bit of that happening. And I think we've done that. But the point of that is for awakening, for the transformation of community. The transformation of those in the world. Because we are debtors to them. Think, why do I say that? Well, the Israelites had God's power. Think about this. In miraculous powers, signs and wonders, deliverance from Egypt, the miracles, the deliverance through the Red Sea, the parting of the sea, the cloud and the pillar of fire, the quail, provision, supernatural provision and the quail and the manna, the tabernacle, the shining face of Moses, the shaking mountain, the clothes that never wore out. You think of something, they had it. And yet they weren't living in God's promise. They had the supernatural power and presence and provision of God. Yet that whole generation died in the desert. Hello. He was calling them to be a kingdom of God on the earth through which the rest of the world could look at them and say, how? To establish them as a kingdom people to reveal the glory of God and invite them to live a kingdom life. And that's what we're called to. Instead of revival every week for the same, us four no more. Just us four no more, just us and G. No, no, no. More. Bigger. Much bigger. And we are not called to drive out people. We're not called to go in and take over what they've built. That's, they took over their houses, their land, their food, everything. We're not called to do that. We're called to drive out spiritual influence so the blindness that besets them can be gone and they can be saved and communities can be transformed and live according to kingdom principles and kingdom values and see the greatest economies and the greatest solutions. This is what we are called to as believers. Let's read further now that I've closed my Bible. But don't worry, I have this fancy thing over there. Let's read further. I'll talk to you about the vital role of leaders. Firstly, what is the first one we see? Verse 16. Let's go back. These are the names of the men who, who Moses sent to spy out the land. And Moses called Hoshea. Hoshea, the son of Nun, Joshua, he changed his name. Then Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, go up this way, into the south. Actually, let me say this first. The role of leaders is so important. Why do I say that? What did it say in verse 1? Every one of them a leader. 
Remember that? Did those people enter in? No. Why? We know what happened. They gave a bad report. So let me say this to leaders. Unless the leader believes in the future that God has, it's unlikely that you will enter. Whatever that promise is, whatever that victory is. So I say that to mothers and fathers and leaders in the business world. The role of leadership and the belief of the heart of leaders is essential and vital. It was leaders who brought the actual, the word is bad report, the actual word is an evil report. And we'll look at what that was. And because of what they said, they didn't enter. It's the same for your family. It's the same for the business. What do you have in your heart as a leader? And then he gives us a key. What is, it? what is that? He renames Joshua. It's interesting. Why? He renames one of the guys who actually had faith to enter. I personally believe that that was one of the reasons that that happened. That's why the Bible says it. When a leader empowers someone who's called to something, he empowers him. He gives him fresh identity. He's saying, I believe in you, Joshua. You are called Joshua. This is actually, I'm showing you by renaming you, this is how God sees you, not how you see you. Before Joshua has done anything, that's leadership. Speak identity. See the treasure in a person and speak to it and bring it out before they've earned a thing. And watch them take hold of something that they couldn't take hold of 10 minutes before. And can I say that's the genuine prophetic, to see the treasure in others. To see how God sees that person and treat them and speak to them as such. And it brings it out. So anyway, let's read. (laughs) Then Moses sent them to spy at the land of Canaan and said to them, go up this way into the south and up to the mountains and see what the land is like. Now how's this? Listen to the seven things he actually asked them to look for. Whether the land, see what the land is like. Whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak. Whether they are few or many. Whether Whether the land they dwell in is good or bad. Whether the cities they inhabit are like camps or strongholds, whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are forests or not. Be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season for the first ripe grapes. That says that because that's what they brought back. So they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin as far as Rehoab, near the entrance of Hamath. And they went up through the south and came to Hebron. Uh, those names. Ahiman, Shishai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, which were from the Nephilim, which were giants, were there. Now Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. Then they came to the valley of Eshkol, and they cut down a branch with one of the cluster of grapes. You know that word Eshkol means cluster? And they renamed the place because they found a cluster there. (laughs) I just thought that was funny. They're like, we'll just call it our own thing because we found a cluster, so we'll call it cluster. To the valley of Eshkol, and they cut down a branch with one of the cluster of grapes, and with it, uh, and they carried it between two of them on a pole. They also, in other words, it was so big 
They had to tie one cluster of grapes in between two of them on a pole. It was massive. The place was called the Valley of Eshkol because of the cluster which the men of Israel cut down there. And they returned from spying out the land after 40 days. Now, what did Moses ask him to record? See what the land is like. In other words, what's the terrain like? Whether the people are weak or strong, whether the people are few or many, whether the land is good or bad, in other words, is it easily defendable, militarily-wise? Can you defend it? Whether the cities they inhabit are camps or strongholds, in other words, do they have a military? Whether the land is rich or poor, that's soil. Can you grow crops? What's the land like? Whether there are forests or not, lumber for building, places for security. He gives them like this, go and do this. Then after 40 days, they go in for 40 days and they come back. And we'll see something very interesting. But first we have to recognize something. How long did they spend in the wilderness? Do you know why? Well, I'll read it to you. One year for every day. My dad knows. He reads the Bible. The Bible says it in the next chapter. The Lord said, after the bad report, after they couldn't believe him, he says, you were in the wilderness, you were in the promised land in a sense. You spied it out for 40 days, and because you couldn't believe, you will spend one year for every day in the wilderness. What's the point? I don't mean this to be heavy, but I'm speaking to leaders now, because we're on the role of the vital role of leaders. When a person touches the promises of God, but can't believe to actually live in them, he holds you to account. He will hold that leader to account. When there's an exp- something of God happens, and how do we steward that move of God? How do we steward those testimonies? How do we just steward what God's doing? Because we actually cannot afford to touch something and then say, that was nice, and walk away. He will hold us to account for that. He says, you saw something. I showed you something. What are you going to do with it, son? They spent 40 years in the wilderness because they were in the promised land for 40 days, but couldn't believe to live like that. Does that make sense? The wonderful thing is we de- we're determining the delay, not the Lord. That's actually, a good, that's actually good news. Because we think, well, you know, the Lord's just got me in this delay. And I'm like, mm-mm, 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 no, no, maybe, possibly, maybe it's you, maybe, just maybe. The good news is it can end through simple heart of faith and belief. Because he's made it possible. The way we don't steward is, steward it is we don't talk about it. little thing like last week. We just gloss over it. We don't talk about it. We just forget about it. That's not stewarding it. Or we read these books, these great God's generals and amazing people, and we think, man, what fruit they had. This big cluster. Look at the fruit and the wonderful things that they did. That would be awesome. Just imagine. God says, no, I actually made that for you. He is that good. Can we continue? We're going to have to wrap this up. 
Now they departed and came back to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. Then they told him and said, We went to the land where you sent us. It truly flows with milk and honey. And this is its fruit. Now imagine, you're all positioned there. You've sent these 12 guys out there, your leaders. You love them. You trust them. They've, they've gone 40 days. They come back, and they're like, this place is awesome. And you're like, yes, yes. You're getting like, and it's the place that God wants us to live in, yes. And then it takes a sour turn. And he said this, and we went to the land we sent, and it truly flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Nevertheless, the people of the dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there, in other words, giants. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites dwell in the mountains. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the banks of the Jordan. Then Caleb, verse 30, quieted the people. So there's this bad, evil report. And then Caleb sees this, and you can imagine if you were there, Caleb's like, no, 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 shh, be quiet. And he says, no, he quiets the people. That's a nice way of saying he told the other guys, shh, shh. And before Moses and said, let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people. Do you see the battle for belief? We are not able, sorry, <coughs> that was well done. Uh, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. I think that's the point, by the way. And they gave the children of Israel an evil report of the land which they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. Now they're even exaggerating. And what they're meaning is that there's been so many battles for this amazing land that the strongest are left and there's a lot of blood in the soil and it's devoured all the previous people. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. There we saw the giants, the descendants of Anak from, came from the giants, and we were like grasshoppers, a little bit of an exaggeration, in our own sight and in their sight. So there's this diverging report that comes. Firstly, we see, it says there, verse 27, we went to the land you sent us. Let me say this, the people of God generally will not even look at the promises of God. They want to come out of Egypt, get saved, be justified, and just, oh, we're saved. This is lovely. Just worship the Lord. And you actually have to command, beg, send people just to look at the victories that Christ has won for you. In general, in the church, you have to say, there's more. Go look, there's more, there's more. I'm not sure, I just, you know, I like my church, and I just, you know, I like my seat. And it's, there's, there's more. They act, you have to send people in to what Christ won. You have to. Then he says, in the beginning of an evil report, you know what's scary about this? And this I trust, in a sense, in a good scary all they did, remember the seven things? He said, go look at the land, go look at the soil, go look at, you know, is it defendable? You know what they did? They came back and gave a factual report about what, God, what Moses had asked them to do. 
Go read it. Go read. He said, go look at these seven things. They said, okay. They went and looked at those seven things. And then they came back and they said, here's your answers. Bang, 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 bang. All they did was speak factually. They said, these are the facts. And the Bible calls it, God killed them for it. The Bible says it was an evil report. All they did was tell them what Moses had asked. Think about that. Why? Because they failed as leaders to see with eyes of the Spirit. To see what God had said. They only saw what their eyes could see. All they did was speak factually. (laughs) But they couldn't see with his eyes. What happens when leaders of God's people cannot see with the eyes of the Spirit? You lose an entire generation. (laughs) An entire generation. Saved, but lost. Saved, no reward. Saved, not bringing the Lord glory. Friends, it's, it's, it's tragic. <laughs> and there's Caleb. He says, no. Let us go up at once. Unreasonable hope. Unreasonable faith. It seems unrealistic. <laughs> no one responds. No one responds. What happens to the response of, what do the people do? It says there, we'll read just a few more verses and we'll be done. You guys still good? Yeah. Following weeks, the guys will preach sort of sermons. <laughs> so, all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron and the whole congregation said to them, if only we had died Hello. If only we had died in the land of Egypt. I mean, come on. Or if only we had died in this wilderness. I would have turned around and said, you can still die in the wilderness. You're still in it. Why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword? You see the perspective of the, what they think God's heart is. Why has the Lord brought us here to kill us? I hear that all the time. God took me into this And now it's awful. And that our wives and children should become victims. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us select a leader and return to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people. Why? They knew too much. You can't go back from what has already been said. They knew what was going to happen. Think of this, Moses who knew God fell on his face. That's, it sounds extreme. He understood what these people didn't yet understand. See, because bad decisions, all the things, let's go back to Egypt, let's kill Moses, let's go get another leader. Bad, bad decisions in God's people follow bad speaking from God's leaders. Always. But Joshua, the son of Nun and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied at the lands, tore their clothes and they spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, the land we pass through to spy it is an exceedingly good land. How's this? If the Lord delights in us, see the difference. What is the main difference 
between the two who saw it with the eyes of the Spirit and the ten who didn't. They believed correctly in God's view of them. The Lord brought us here to kill us. The Lord delights in us. The main difference. If the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, for fear the, uh, nor fear the people of the land, for they are our bread. See this heart? And their protection has departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear. So, just quickly, the response of the people, well, they wept. It's called hope deferred. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. They were waiting there for this. Oh, it's wonderful. Oh, look at this fruit. Yeah, but we can do it. And the loss of hope, hope deferred, led to a sick heart. And they wept. A whole million, about two, between one and two million people weeping that night. And then they complained against Moses. And you must imagine, they've just had Numbers 12. If you're a genius, you know, Numbers 12 comes before Numbers 13. Which is where Miriam complained against Moses and got struck with leprosy. So they've just had that example. It's not a good idea. And they complain against Moses. <laughs> and we see something very important as leaders, as God's people. What? They actually heard two reports. The one was factual. The one was spiritual. With the eyes of the spirit. We see that God's people are more inclined to believe bad news. They're more inclined to believe what their eyes see. They're more inclined to accept the negative. And that's exactly what happened. They believed what their eyes confirmed, and they couldn't possibly see differently. I believe they could have if the leaders taught them to. Are you with me? Are we still friends? What is the typical pattern, and I'll end with this, of how does unbelief begin in a culture of unbelief when a person struggles with it in a person, in a church, in a nation, in a church culture? How does a typical pattern of unbelief, we see it literally in this chapter. Firstly, you see according to the natural only. You can't see with the eyes of the Spirit. What has God said? What has God said? What has God said? What has God said? How does God see? How does God think? But we see according to the natural. It becomes easier then to believe the negative that our eyes confirm. What happens then? What's the next step? We begin to doubt the Lord and actually his heart and his intentions. Why has the Lord brought us here to kill us? When we look at just the natural, just the circumstances, just what's happening in the nation, and we, how are we going to do this? And we, and we just do that. And we begin to believe what our eyes see. Instead of what God has said, eventually you'll come to a place where you start to doubt the Lord's heart for you. Then, they choose to rather go with what they can see, what they can control, because they have the power to control that decision, even if it entraps them. Why? Because Egypt is still having its influence here. The thinking of Egypt makes no sense in Canaan, but the thinking of Canaan makes no sense in Egypt. They're still thinking like a slave. Then, they set up their own authority based on their desires. That's the pattern. 
We'll set up our own authority. We'll choose new leaders. We'll do this because this guy's expecting us to do what actually God said. That's crazy. We're going to do this. And what's the response? You know what the response was after Caleb says it in verse 10? It says in uh, just one verse. After he gave that other report, Caleb and Joshua, I mean, verse 10, the Lord has departed from them. The Lord is with us. He is up. They are our bread. Do not fear them. Verse 10, and all the congregation said, stone them with stones. <laughs> the response is destroy those with unreasonable hope and faith. Take them out. And friends, I mean this with a loving heart. There's entire church cultures built on this. Remove unrealistic hope, remove faith if it's based on God, not based on what we want. Remove that, get rid of it, attack that, destroy that. Because it's not possible. God says it is. Then I love this. Then dad shows up. You know when everyone's in the house and dad goes, that's enough. And everyone's like, maybe it was just my house <laughs> growing up, but that's what I remember, all right? It says, and all the congregation said, stone them with stones, and the Lord, the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle before all of the children of Israel. God interrupts. Everyone be quiet. Everyone stop. He calls Moses. And he gives him, he says this, the next verse, he says to Moses, why do the people reject me? It's the greatest insight of how the Lord feels when God's people don't believe him. Why are they rejecting me? We're going to go on a journey through these chapters and through Joshua, the second generation. And I say this because of some of the things that the Lord is doing with us and what he's called us to and where he's taking us is a glorious future and it's a glorious inheritance. But we go together. Amen? So now I'm going on vacation. <laughs> and, uh, and I love you all. I really do. I ask you, Please go look at the chapters with New Testament lenses, with New Testament eyes. Let God speak to you. Come with us because there is a land we call to possess where the sick are healed, where demonized are delivered, where the lost are saved, and where transformation comes to society. And don't stone me with stones. That's what God has said. Amen. Amen. Bless you. Well done. All right. Uh, reminder, at Homeschool Moms, there's going to be a meeting back in the coffee bar area afterwards if you'd like to learn about social gatherings and all the fun stuff that Homeschool Moms do. We've got a ministry team over here ready to pray for folks. And if you've been in a car accident, have some type of physical issue from that, come get prayer. Otherwise, go beat the heat. See you guys next week. Good morning, Free Life Church. We're glad you've joined us today. If you are visiting in person, please stop by the Connection Corner in the lobby to receive your welcome bag and learn more about Free Life Church. A member from our Connection team will be there to answer any questions you have. We look forward to meeting you. Homeschooling families of Free Life Church, please stop by the back of the sanctuary after the service for an opportunity to sign up to receive information about upcoming homeschool and social opportunities. Kids Place at FLC has great events you and your little ones will not want to miss. 
and on August 18th, spend a day of fun at the Idaly Aquatic Center. We are thrilled to welcome Pastor Eamon and his wife, Mary, founders of Hope Community Center on August 21st for a seminar on ministering to Muslims and learn more about what the Lord is doing in the Muslim community. Please register online. Lunch and childcare are provided. All men are invited to an evening of food, fellowship, and worship at the home of Devin and Sarah Vale here in Leesburg. The evening will kick off with a barbecue dinner followed by a bonfire for some fellowship and acoustic worship. There are current outreach and volunteer opportunities with local ministries we partner with. The Back to School Fiesta is August 14th and volunteers will be needed. You can also participate by bringing single subject spiral and composition notebooks to the collection in the front hall. Contact Bill or Beth LaRock for more information. We now have a free Life Church app. Keep up with the latest sermons and events, find ways to connect, and have an easy way to give. Available for Android or Apple devices at the respective app stores, or text FLC app to 41400 for a link to download. For more information about all of our upcoming events, please see the events page on our website. Thanks for tuning in.